Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, April 21st, 2014, and this is episode 1338 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Monday. That means it's time for your feedback. This is where you send me emails and you put question for Jack, comment for Jack, article for Jack, subject for Jack, video for Jack, something for Jack in the subject line. You don't put anything else, one word, the words for Jack in the subject line. And then you send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. You put your link there and one or two sentences giving me like a synopsis about what it is so I can scan it quickly. And if you have a long question, you, you put your question in like one sentence and then you give me details after it. It's most likely to get screened that way and end up on the show. I get two to four hundred emails a day like this being conservative, honestly. So obviously I only get a small fraction of them on the air, but I do actually peruse and read them all. And many times I'll send a two or three word response back to a person if I think, you know, I've covered it already and here's where it is or something like that. So I try to look after you guys. I try to answer everybody. I physically cannot do it, but I do my best. Uh, but if you follow my procedure, it's more likely that you'll hear back from me or hear your, your stuff on the air. All right, with that, um, again, that email address, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. There's a the or a the there, depending on where you're from in the country. Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. I promise you it's better to get in touch with me that way than it is on Facebook, LinkedIn, forums, all this other stuff. Email something I do, and I batch out four or five times a day. Uh, before I get into uh, your emails and your stuff for this week, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show's for you here Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Awesome, awesome training from Frank Sharp and his cadre of professional instructors. Uh, if you need training, go see Frank Sharp. That's I'll just leave it at that. And if you uh, if you carry a firearm with you on a daily basis and you haven't had training in the last couple of years, you need training. I mean, I'll just put it to you that way. If you've never had professional firearms training and you think that you're going to rely on your weapon at some point or you might rely on your weapon and that is part of your plan, you need professional training. There is a triangle of gun operator efficiency, as I call it. I don't know if anybody else uses that term, but, but that's something I've come up with over my years because I believe there's three components to being effective with a weapon. Good, quality, reliable ammunition. If you don't have ammo, your gun's a club. A good gun. The gun has to function. It has to, you have to know that weapon. It has to be something that can be relied upon. And then three is the operator, you yourself. And the gun can be purchased and the ammo can be purchased. You can purchase training, but it only really counts if you internalize it, take it in and use it and continue your own training. What I love about Frank's methodology is it's designed not just to train you while you're there, but teach you how to train on your own after you leave. Check him out today, FortressDefense.com. Next up today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? I know it's shocking. I know it's earth-shattering, but the Berkey Guy has Berkey Water Filtration Systems. He also has a lot of other great stuff for your prepping needs, like the Survival Cave line of storable foods and other cool stuff. But why get your Berkey or your Berkey filters from the Berkey Guy? Well, don't be the guy that got it from the non-Berkey Guy. Don't be the guy that buys your Berkey from like this dude at a gun show that heard prepping was hot and went into the business yesterday. Go with the guy that is the number one distributor for Berkey in the country, 
the guy that will take care of you like a customer service maniac, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. You can find Berkey Systems from Jeff and all his other cool stuff at his website, directive21.com, directive 21.com. Next up today, our MSB discount vendor of the day is Mother Earth Products. Mother Earth Products has bulk orderable uh, dehydrated vegetables, uh, dehydrated fruits, and freeze-dried fruits, and some other really great products. They give a 12% discount to members of our support brigade on all of their products. And that reminds me, I probably need to stock up on some of the stuff that I use for cooking uh, as soon as we get back from vacation. Because this is my next announcement. Jack Spirico is going on vacation. Jack is not going on a pseudo-vacation where I go work for a week and take an extra day off or two. No, I'm going on a park my ass on the beach with my wife vacation to Sanibel, Florida, and we are leaving here on Wednesday morning. We are not coming back until the 3rd. That means that starting on Wednesday, there will be no Survival Podcast new episodes for the rest of this week and all of next week. I'm sorry. I did not, with everything going on with Permaethos and stuff like that, I did not have time to preload episodes. I'll do some blog posting while I'm away. I'll post some pictures and cool stuff while I'm away. Uh, check out the Facebook page mostly for the pictures. Um, but I'll do some stuff like that. I'll let you know what's going on behind the scenes with Permaethos. But mostly... I'm going to sit on the beach, I'm going to fish, I'm going to drink some margaritas, um, I'm going to have a lot of fun with my wife, uh, Doc Bones and Nurse Amy are coming over for a few days, we're going to go out on a boat and chase dolphins, uh, we are on absolute true vacation, and I feel uh, that we've probably earned that, uh, we haven't actually taken a true vacation for two years now. Uh, this would be our third year if we didn't didn't go this year. We've done, like I said, we go do it in a convention or a workshop or something like that and work for five days and take two or three days um, at the tail end of it. And it's never really where we wanted to be on vacation. And my wife has sacrificed a lot for me, and I feel she's got this coming. So, again, I apologize that there will be no show for those, you know, those eight days. Um, but everybody's got to do it once in a while. And there are... As of today, 1,338 reasons that you don't have to go without your survival podcast. Uh, come by the website on any given day when you're, you know, jonesing for an episode, hit the random episode button, and it will randomly select a post for you nine times out of ten. That'll be an episode that you, uh, can listen to. If you don't like the episode or if you get a blog update or something like that, hit it again, and you'll find something cool. Maybe I'll make some recommendations while I'm gone and things like that. Anyway, uh, with that, I want to get into, uh, the main topic of today's show. And uh, let's start out with our year that was the episode. The year is 1338, a grave plague. Gravestones of the Nestorian Christians found near Lake Isik Kul in Kyrgyzstan have inscriptions referring to the plague of 1338. The plague will move into northern India, Kurdistan, eventually reaching Constantinople nine years later. The plague is moving slowly but steadily. Since Isak Kul is a major hub along the Silk Road, this suggests that the plague followed the Silk Road until it reached Constantinople and spread quickly from there. Other scholars suggest the plague followed the Mongol armies and jumped into Genoan ships when they escaped the Mongol invasion. Ghost ships will be reported as grounding themselves on the coast of Norway. The coastal residents, sensing a commercial opportunity, will board the ships and offload a cargo of death. But that is all in the future. For now, it's a beautiful day on the Black Sea. This is from Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com. His take on this, The average person of the Middle Ages has daily relentless fight with bedbugs and fleas. 
And too much bathing is seen as unhealthy. Also, while fleas are the normal transmission vector for bubonic plague, the plague can become airborne as pneumonic plague. Transmitted from human to human via coughing, crowded conditions, and cold weather is about guarantee infection. This is probably what devastated Europe since the disease did not let up in winter, as one would expect with a strictly flea-borne disease. What's the lesson for the modern day? Keep your body and clothes reasonably clean. Make your home reasonably pest-free when in doubt quarantine. Even though there are drugs that will fight plague today, you don't want this. You don't want this. And I'd also say that the lesson of Black Death, bubonic plague, is not about bubonic plague itself. It's about disease. It's about pandemic. It's about epidemic. It's about the spread of contagious disease. I have more thoughts on that, but I'll save them because it lines up with a story that we're going to cover later today. Next up, let's go ahead. This is Conflicted Monday. Yes, Conflicted Monday. This is where we see how conflicted we can make you. We get you a scenario. I read you a scenario from Conflicted, Survival Scenarios Card Games. And then you guys come to the website, thesurvivalpodcast.com, look up the episode, today's 1338 again, and comment your responses in the blog and have discussions. And then next week, I tell you what I would have done last week, and um, I'll give you a new scenario. So let's start out. Last week's Conflicted Monday scenario was the survival group you belong to has lots of children. What are three essential life skills that every child should know in today's current society? What are three other skills that would you would add to their education in a post-apocalyptic world? There were a lot of great answers to this. Here's what I would say. My number one skill I would want to teach children in today's world is critical thinking and research. Because I almost don't have to teach them much of anything else after that. Today, the, 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 the information that's necessary to develop skills, develop knowledge, and to learn is so freely available. Uh, I, I can only imagine what it must be like for a child in school today uh, when they break free from the monotony of Common Core and other stupid crap from the state, and they have like a research project, and it's like, you know, go out and learn about this animal, and then they can go to Google and just boom, instead of looking at encyclopedias that are 20 years old. Um, it, it's just an amazing time. So critical thinking I would teach and research those two. Um And I think if you have those two, you can develop anything else. So I think the third thing that I would want to teach children today is trusting their instincts. Trusting their instincts and following their passions. So those would be mine. Because I believe that we're telling children today that you have to do these things and stay in these lines to, so that you can get a job someday and pay the bills. And what we're saying is... All the people that follow this path, like 85 to 90% of them that are quote-unquote successful are miserable and hate their jobs. So it's very important that you follow that path versus, hey, you really can be and do anything you want. So I would want to teach them to trust their instincts and follow their passions, how to, how to research and learn, and how to critically analyze so that they're not misled. Those are the three skills I'd want to teach children today. Post-collapse... Post-collapse. Um, I think the first thing I would want to teach them is that things are now different. That, that, that's the biggest thing, is that ex to, to, to teach them to accept that things are not like they used to be. They're just not like they used to be at all anymore. And that you can't follow the rules of yesterday anymore. And that we have to handle things totally differently now. So the first would be, Just an acceptance that things are no longer the way they are. Number two, and I would teach them this now, but I mean, I'd have to take it to a higher level in a group after collapse, situational awareness. 
Situational awareness just would be massively important and barter. I would work with them inside our group on barter first because I think barter would be so important post-collapse. And it's going to tie right into this week's conflicted scenario, and I promise you I didn't cheat. Um, but I, I really feel that if we ever ended up with this type of collapse, where people right now often get into this, this bunker mentality and think, like, I don't want anybody to know where I'm at. People would be seeking each other out, and, and groups that it would start out with, we need to make sure no one comes here, and don't bring your friends when you come, because they didn't contribute to our stockpile, would be out actively recruiting people very, very quickly, because there is strength in numbers. Now, there's a capacity based on any group's size and or any group's resources and area of operations and things like that. There's a capacity limitation because you're living more hunter-gatherer tribal at that point, but you would be recruiting people because you would need the numbers. Because if you're five, you're dead. Okay, So they would need to know how to interact and barter with others because we would be bringing people in and out. There would be contact with other elements. And it may be very much so that that's where all opportunity for rebuilding lies. So those are the things I would teach afterward. Okay, today's survival scenario, which does dovetail beautifully into this one. Describe how you would approach other survival groups after the collapse. That's the whole thing. So again, remember, the scenario, though, is it is the end of the world as we know it. Dogs and cats are having puppy kittens. Uh, the, the zombies have risen from the grave. They're feeding on brains. This is true apocalyptic collapse scenario. And you are part of a survival group. You guys have your stuff squared away, um, but you know you can't do it alone. And there's other groups out there, and you need alliances, you need commerce, and you need to start rebuilding. But how do you know who you trust? How do you approach that other group? Again, love to hear your comments in the comments section for today's show. And I've started something new. I now have today's conflicted scenario and last week's in the show notes, both of them for refreshers and reminders when you show up to do your posting. Okay, next thing I want to do real quick, I'm talking two minutes here, is give you a Permaethos update. Here's the update on Permaethos. We are taking applications for people that want to be volunteer workers for short periods of time. We are still looking for a permanent uh, position tenant farmer designed to work with Josiah, be trained, and, and, and end up eventually running one of their own farms and certainly end up running a profit center on our farm. Small step in to start out housing and food provided for that position. And we are looking for element partners. These are people that will be able to come and set up businesses. We really recommend you come as a volunteer worker first and get an idea. And I'll just say on the element partner thing, I'm starting to come up with ways to expand this very, very fast. I can't tell you what they are yet, though. And because the reason is my mind works in this weird way where I wake up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, take a walk around the, the, the property, and then form complete ideas for business units. And then I go, oh, I could do this. And then I go, wait a minute, you have partners. You have to discuss this with them first. This is no longer a sole proprietorship you're involved in. So I have to discuss these, but I think they're going to be really excited about what I have to offer. And I, I think there's a way that a lot of you guys are approaching me already and saying, you know, eventually I'd want to have a farm of my own or I want a thing of my own. I think there's a way we can take people, even with very small holdings of land, and give them opportunities to develop business units almost as like a virtual fiefdom. 
a virtual element partner that could be really, really small and grow really, really large over time, or just stay small and just be something that's extra for a person. We, we do have to discuss this further, but I've got some cool ideas. And I've got some really great people that are already coming to do certain things. Michael Jordan is going to be setting up bees on our site. He's going to be teaching, right now we're calling it, is a code word kind of, is a BDC, a bee design course. So permaculture bees. Um, and it gives me some ideas. I can't tell you yet. And uh, I'm talking to Nick Ferguson, who's one of our partners in the company. And he wants to set up a nursery at his property to do growing for us in West Virginia and, and other things. And I have some ideas for him, too that I think might really spread permaethos much, much faster. If you want to know what's going on, though, the best thing to do is get over to permaethos.com. I have always promised not to make the survivalpodcast.com the permaethos infomercial channel, and I'm going to keep that promise. My updates will be brief. Um, but we do have a Q&A going on over there for people that want to know more. And one of the biggest things, and if you just go to permaethos.com and click on questions, you can start getting answers to your questions about this from Josiah, who is running the whole show here. Um, and it's pretty cool the way he's got it set up there to do that. Um, but the biggest question has been, when are you going to open the PDC for the first thousand members uh, to take a PDC? And help get the farm off the ground. And the answer is sometime in May. Probably second week, the way I'm looking at it now. Joe will be on his way up there. Um, there's a lot of things that have to be done that I'm probably going to have to deal with some of them. Like setting up bank accounts and also we can actually take funding in. Um, and I'm going to be gone starting Wednesday. So that may put a kink in the worst a little bit on some, some stuff and give us a couple extra days before we can start taking student registrations. But that'll be great because there'll be less time between the time that we take the money in and we start actually delivering modules of the PDC. The other question has been, and even though I've answered this like 50 times, it keeps coming, will the MSB members get first crack since there's only a 1,000 spots for the first round? Yes. Yes. A full day before it's open to everybody else. Um, I, it also is the case that if you are a premium member of Brink of Freedom and not an MSB member, one of Josiah's premium members of Brink of Freedom, you will also get in the first round opening. So, yes, okay, and may. And it, I've had people like emailing me and goes, it's still available. It hasn't even started yet, okay? So give us some time on that. So uh, with that, no more permaethos for the rest of this episode. Okay, my first story for you today is on Ebola. I got an email and that email came from Ken, and Ken said, Ebola made the jump to Europe, and there's a link to shit hit the fan plan. Um, and it's uh, it's at best yellow journalism. It's at best yellow journalism. But it doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. But I, I this is the kind of things that I, I tell you I don't like to see out of media, whether alternative or regular. Uh, here's what it's, here's some of what it says. Though officials at the World Health Organization are feverishly working to stop the spread of Ebola virus. Well, let me give you the, the headline first. This is it. Report, Ebola suspected in Europe, broken through all containment efforts. Mark Salvo, April 20th, 2014. Shit hit the fan Come on. Though officials at the World Health Organization are furiously working to stop the spread of Ebola virus in what is now seven African nations, their efforts may be for naught. In Guinea, a hot spot for the deadly contagion, government health officials have said the outbreak is nearly under control. Yet Reuters reports that the government planned to stop publicly releasing the death toll to avoid causing unnecessary panic. 
But panic may be in order. See, anybody that says that just bugs the shit out of me. Panic may be in order! Despite the best efforts of emergency health workers, it appears that the virus may have crossed out of Africa into Europe. Italian officials deny the reports, but alternative media in the country suggest that it is the reason for the complete lockdown of the hospital in Pisa, where it is believed to have infected some 40 individuals. Other reports are trickling in from various sources like social media indicate the virus may have also appeared 50 miles from Pisa in Tuscany, Italy. Alarmingly, a story that appeared about the outbreak on National Newswire was reportedly removed by the Italian government for national security reasons, suggesting there is more to the reports than the Italian officials are willing to express to the public at this time. Though they have denied that the Pisa hospital was locked down due to Ebola, they seem to be bracing for the possibility of severe epidemic in Rome and Milan. According to Samaritan's Purse, a Christian relief group actively working with hospitals and health officials in Guinea and Liberia, what makes Ebola so dangerous is it can be transmitted through human contact and may take weeks before symptoms appear. Okay, so I'm going to stop there and you can read the rest of this if you want to. Um, I don't know that it's really worth your time. Uh, like I said, this is like hyperbole and, and what have you. Now, let's just talk about one line there. So this report comes out, the Italian officials say, is not true. And they say they removed it for national security reasons. Well, if it's not true, wouldn't it be in the nation's security to not have something out that causes people to panic when they shouldn't panic? As I'm sitting here on this website looking at a, a, a banner that says the collapse is coming, the giant cannonball covered with money, will you be ready for it, that I'm sure is going to sell me some crap? Uh, I just... I. I, I think we have to be a little bit more realistic about these things. Now, I did find something that is legitimate, um, that nothing happened, but boy, it's, um, it, it shows the concern that officials do have that this is going to happen. Um, this is Air France plane from Guinea, briefly quarantined after Ebola scare. Paris, an Air France plane from Ebola-hit West African country of Guinea, was quarantined in Paris for two hours Friday after the crew suspected a passenger may have a deadly disease, the airline said. The flight from the Guinea capital, Cookery, landed in Paris' Charles de Gaulle Airport, 3.28 a.m., with 187 passengers, 11 crew. Emergency services conducted a check for fever on all of those traveling after a dirty toilet sparked concern that a passenger could be infected with a deadly highly contagious disease, which apart from other symptoms triggers severe diarrhea. The test turned out negative, an Air France spokesman said. Ebola can be transmitted human to humans from wild animals and between humans through direct contact with another's blood, feces, or sweat. Sexual contact or unprotected handling of corpses can also lead to infection. In Guinea, health authorities have reported 134 suspected Ebola cases since the beginning of this year, of which 86 have been fatal. Liberia has also reported cases of the disease, and Mali on Thursday detected three suspected victims of Ebola. France last week stepped up vigilance for the virus. The country, a former colonial power in much of West Africa, is a major portal for air traffic from the region. Um... Yeah, so some guy, guy destroys the lavatory on the airplane, everybody freaks out, thinks there's Ebola, and they quarantine the plane. Um, you can understand why. I mean, the most important thing to take away from this, health authorities have reported in Guinea 134 suspected cases. 86 have been fatal. 86... Out of 134. I mean, doing the math in my head, that's got to be, what, 65-ish percent? 
66, somewhere in there, 64, 65, 66% of people that get this disease, more than half die. Even with better medicine, maybe you take that to a 50-50 death rate. If you get 20,000 cases of it, you get 10,000 dead people. I mean, this is a serious thing. And this is why I don't like crap like shit at the fanplan.com, you know, putting out headlines. Ebola suspected in Europe. Broken through all containment efforts. And people read that and just think, oh, it's already happened. It might. It might. But this whole thing's a sales pitch. It's really important that we in the preparedness and liberty movements rein stuff in and not be excessive with things, not go over the edge, not be hypesters. You know, I was, I was talking to somebody on the blog about this thing I covered Friday with, you know, are we a republic or a democracy? Well, we're a republic that, that elects our representatives through a democratic process, so in effect we are both. We are not a pure democracy. We are a republic with a democratic component to how we elect our officials. If we were not a democracy, our officials would be appointed or they would elect themselves from a group of nobles or something like this. And the whole point was that we, you know, there's this report that comes out from Princeton that says, the U.S. is an oligarchy. It's not a democracy ever! Just quit being stupid. It's a much bigger problem that when you examine the nation today, it's not, it's not being run the way it's supposed to be, that it's ruled by the elite, which is exactly what it's not supposed to be. I think most people don't even know what the frickin' definition of republic is, by the way. I mean, do you really know what a republic is? A republic is a form of government in which power is exercised by the public at large, and affairs of the state are a concern of the public sphere. The the, the word is not magic. And, and, and it doesn't just fix everything. And it's, it's this kind of quibbling, and the quibbling was a word that somebody sent me to describe this, that that gets people off and in, in, in off the rails. And, and I know I kind of went off on the side here, but the reason that I went off on the side is when, when people do this, when people start acting out and quibbling over minutia while the country falls apart, and, and they're in the liberty movement, we, we have this term that gets bantered around in the liberty movement about liberals, libtards, right? Which is a term I don't really like because I think you're devaluing a person immediately out of hand without actually knowing what their point is. Because there's actually a lot of things that liberals are for that I'm not opposed to, right? And there's a lot of things liberals are for that I'm also for, and there's a lot of things liberals are for that I'm opposed to. So there's things I don't oppose, but I don't support. I just, I don't care. I'm neutral on them. As long as I don't have to pay for it, and nobody else has to pay for it, and you just think that's the way things should be, and you want to make the case for it, I'm neutral on it. There's things that liberals are for, which if you're not for them, you have to really ask yourself what, what your problem is, Right? Like equality. Now, the problem with liberals is they get into this equality and it means something totally different to them. Like giving other people your shit. That's not equality. That's inequality. You're using force to take from one to give to another. That's not equality. That's favoring the, 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 the gifted and taking from the giver, right? Okay, so I know where the things break down with, with words there, but this just libtard crap and repugnance is the is the counter term, I guess, that people use to, to describe Republicans or conservatives. Um, but I wonder when I hear some of this crap, you know, do we need a turd like libertard for liberty movement retard? 
because some of this stuff is just nonsense, and it it's what leads to things like this shit at the fan plan article, right? I mean, Ebola suspected in Europe broken through all containment efforts. I mean, this is nonsense, and we have to get control, folks. Please, when you get these emails, please do like a cursory bit of research before you just forward them or paste them to Facebook and things like that. Make sure there's some fact. If there is fact, usually what you find with the yellow journalism and the hype and the stuff, there's truth in there, right? There's truth in there. So extract the truth, then get actual facts behind the truth from from a, a reliable source, and then present that. But the hype stuff, man, it just makes us look dumb. And this is just another example. And then again, when you're pointing out the fact that the, the country is being run by elites and that a major university has conducted a study that, that clearly shows this to be the case, um, and people want to argue this, this decades-old crap. They, by the way, there wouldn't even have been an argument in 1950 about this. There would have, In 1950, if you would have said, well, the U.S. isn't a democracy, it's a republic, people would have said, oh, shut up. We know what, I know, we know what that means. Like I said, the reason the article, the reason there's a point to be made today is because people have taken democracy to mean pure democracy. They've been democracy to mean if your side loses, shut up and go away. That's, that's not how this country works. We are supposed to be a constitutionally limited republic. And our government fails to fall within the limits of the Constitution on a, on a frequent basis. Absolute frequent basis. They fail to, to be there. And we fail to make them be there. But that has nothing to do with whether or not we're a democracy or not. Just like my dog that I have, Charlie, is a pointer and a pit bull. Right? Being a pit bull does not mean he's not also a pointer. We have the DNA to prove it. Okay? So he is a pointer pit bull mix. We are a we are a republic that elects our officials democratically, which makes us a democratically elected representative democracy in the form of a republic. Anyway, I'm going to go on from there because I'm just getting bogged down with it myself. Just again, please rein in the accentuation of these things because we don't need to accentuate or hype up anything. There's enough wrong in the world. Uh, the preparing makes sense. There's enough wrong in the world that building some sort of economic uh, preparations for yourself makes a lot of sense. And it does lead to a better life, even if times don't get tough. Uh, let's go to another one. Now, maybe the reason that I went off a little bit uh, in that segue will, will make sense because of what's up next. This is from David. Um, David says, what criteria or thought process do you go through when evaluating a proposed right or liberty to determine whether or not it is one government should guarantee. Various groups and governments all have lists. Some have a job, a living wage, food, and so-called positive liberties. Other than I want government to do as little as possible and the impossibilities of guaranteeing something in reality, there are other reasons in logic we can apply. Are there other reasons in logic we can apply here? Let's start out with what I just believe. Just how I feel as a human being on God's planet Earth. Uh, when I evaluate whether or not something is a right, that's a right. A right does not require anyone to do anything for you or give anything to you. Okay? It's, if it's an intrinsic right, it doesn't require another person to provide it for you. Okay? 
It simply requires that no one impede it. That is my entire test for whether something's a right or not. Do you have a right to health care? You have a right to, 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 to treat yourself however you choose and to do business with whoever you choose in regards to your health. You have a right to that. Yes. Do you have a right to have someone in such a way that I should be required to fund your health care? Or that if I'm a doctor and I don't wish to treat you, I should be required to treat you other than life-saving circumstances? No. If you come to me and go, I want you to be my doctor, and I go, I don't want to be your doctor, that should be fine. If you come to me and go, I want you to, to be my doctor, and I go, okay, and you go, okay, well, I want to come see you on Wednesday, and I go, okay, call my office and make an appointment, and you go, okay, but I don't want to pay. I should not have to treat you. Now, when we set up a hospital and things like that, and somebody comes in, I think there's a there's an intrinsic ethical requirement of individuals. If I can save a life, I should. I don't know that you have a right to have me do that, though. Okay? I think, But when somebody's entrusted as a doctor, see, and this is where everything gets messy. Now we're paying you with public funds. Well, damn well you're going to treat the person that comes in that's, that's in danger of dying, whether you want to or not. But I, I think that is, is more, it's a moral imperative, right? So there's morality and there's rights, and those are two different things. So from a moral imperative, if I see you in some sort of danger and I can do anything that will save your life, I will. Okay? Within reason. Right, So if me saving you is going to kill 50 other people, you're probably screwed. I'm sorry. I'm not going to kill 50 to save one, just to make it a little bit more clear. But no, you don't have a right to health care. You have a right to see to your health, and no one should impair you from that. So I, I actually think it works differently. So you have a right to choose what to eat, and that's part of your health. So when the government says, no, you can't consume raw milk, you can't buy raw milk, I see that as a violation of your rights. Because now someone else is intervening. See, I don't, first of all, so I don't like the, you know, the impossibility of guaranteeing is brought up by David. I'm glad he put that there because I would have said it. You can't guarantee anything. But when it comes to rights, the purpose of government, the sole purpose of government, should be to ensure that one's rights are not interfered with. Some of the rights granted in our Constitution, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So you should not interfere with my pursuit of happiness right up until I harm you or I harm somebody else. And then I violated another's rights. And when you violate the rights of another, you've, you've subjected your own to scrutiny. It's a pretty simple ethical you know, qualification there. But I have a right to, to liberty. And to me, liberty means... What I own is mine, and it's not yours, it's not public property, it's not subject to the state. And so I think property taxes and income taxes are completely and totally unconstitutional on individuals. Because individuals are having their right to liberty violated solely by taking their property. Well, no, they're still free. No, no, I'm not. If you believe that, then I would like to come to your house... And take your stuff on, on an ongoing... Whenever I show up, I'll just look around and go, you don't need that. You don't need that. Where's your cash drawer? Okay, I'm going to take a little bit of that. Okay, and uh, yeah, I need a sandwich, so I'm going to make one out of your refrigerator. And then I need a beer, and goodbye. And I'll just do that whenever I want to, like the derelict Uncle Sam does all the time. Through so many methods, including fractional reserve banking, the Federal Reserve, and inflation tax, which most people don't understand. That's, all, that's a violation of your liberty. You don't have liberty 
if you don't have a right to your own property. So what my thought process is, is when we look at a proposed right or liberty to determine whether or not as one government should, let's say, protect, is does it require taking from one to provide to another? And if the answer is yes, the government should not be in that business. The government should just not be in that business. The, the, if it's a right, if it's a right, in my view, it, there, there is no need for anyone to provide it to you, only that you not be impeded from pursuing it. I think you have a right to wealth, but I don't think you have a right to someone else's wealth. If you can acquire wealth without harming others, through ethical means, you have a right to as much of it as you can amass. You can do whatever you want with it. Right up until you harm somebody. And just because you think this guy over here deserves something, he deserves at least a place to live, doesn't give you a right to impede my right to my wealth. So that's, that's what it is for me. Rights do not require someone else to act on your behalf Unless you're being interfered with, unless you're being oppressed, unless you're being attacked. So you have a right to life. Okay? And life means more than just breathing. Because if that was the case, I could put you in a cube. Well, that wouldn't be liberty, right? But life is also means to be free from harm as you live your life. So if every day, like some bully in school, Which is why I hate school, by the way. I'll get back to that in a second. If every day, like some bully in school, when you were on your way out to your car, I lived next door to you, and I came over and just punched you in the face, right, and took something from you, I'd be violating your right to life and liberty right there. Now, that's where the role of government, if there's going to be a state, that's the role of government, to say, you know what, you can't punch him in the face. In fact, you weren't supposed to punch him in the face, and you weren't supposed to take his stuff. So now you've committed assault and battery, and you've committed uh, theft. So we're going to take you away now, and you've given up your right to liberty and your right to life for a while, for, for your freedom of your life and the quality of your life, to repent and pay for what you've done to harm someone else. Right. So I don't need, for the guy that's getting punched in the face, I don't need to do anything to give him that freedom. I just need to protect that freedom. That should be the role of government. When we start saying people have a right to a living wage, there's no such thing as a right to a living wage. There's a right to pursue a living wage. You shouldn't be not allowed to earn money. They shouldn't be, you know, like one time in history, people would say, well, you can't do certain things. What do you mean? You're a serf. You work the land. But I want to kind of move up to a tradesman. I want to, be a, I want to make barrels. Oh, no. Now, you have to be sponsored into that. If you can find a master tradesman that will sponsor you into that, you can, you can become an apprentice, and after a certain amount of years, you can make your own barrels. But you can't just go apply to be an apprentice. You've got to have somebody that wants you to be. But you, well, I don't want an apprentice. I just want to figure out how to make my own barrels. And if they suck, nobody will buy them. Nope, can't do it. Not allowed. That's how the, the world was run at one point. You're not, you can't do that. I want to be a blacksmith. I just want to... Get my own stuff and just set up a kill. Nope, can't do it. You're a serf. See, now that is an impediment of right. Because I should be able to do anything I want 
seriously, anything I want to earn a living as long as I'm not harming anybody else. And that's, that's to me the difference between rights and fake rights. You can't legitimately claim that someone has a right if it requires the violation of someone else's natural-born rights in order to deliver it. That's pretty simple. Or, as the pagans would say, and it harm none, do as thou will. Anyway, let's go on from there and take another one. That's actually a great question, though. Thank you for that, David. Here's an interesting one from the other John in West Virginia, not John from West Virginia. All right. Um, advantages of open sourcing. I've been telling my family about the process of looking for plants for my half acre. I share every new plant source I find as well as the ones I'm looking for. My mother told me where over 40 years ago my grandmother planted one of her prizes that had been drifting down to the family since at least the early 1800s. She planted it over 40 years ago at the edge of another relative's garden when she was not able to grow anything temporarily. She came back and got some starts the following year uh, the her, continue her chain of custody, but the leeks had already naturalized. I found a large patch of them growing on the ground layer of a 20-year-old stand of trees and will be transplanting some of my own property this week. I have multiple relatives making space in their gardens to restart the tradition. All of us that remember eating at my grandmother's have eaten this plant, the other John from West Virginia. Isn't that awesome? Is that awesome? And is that a case for perennial vegetables? Right? Is that a case? I mean, so if you, like, your grandmother uh, 40 years ago uh, planted some corn at the edge of a relative's garden and you went back, do you think you'd find it? But leeks are a perennial vegetable. They're an amazing vegetable. There's a, actually up in that, uh, Appalachia, it's a great place for them, too. Uh, there's leek festivals in, in, in parts of, of the Appalachians. Uh, where they eat the wild leeks, but these apparently have been ones that they've been, you know, working with in this family now for over a hundred years. So I just thought that was cool, and it's a case for, you know, it says open sourcing, but it's a case for talking to people and uh, sharing knowledge and preserving things like that. That's that's awesome. Um, when I get a little more shade down here, John, I might have to hit you up for a few plants, but I, I've got to get some things going. Uh, a little bit more shaded and uh, improved soil before leeks going to stand a chance in this climate. But uh, I'd like to carry on that tradition as well for you. Anyway, let's go to another one. As we move on, I've been telling you that, and no one believed this. I, I, I said this before Obamacare was passed, that by the time of the 2016 presidential election, Republicans would be on board with Obamacare. They would fight the fake fight, and they would eventually turn around and sell it to you. And here we sit in 2014, two years before the big election, the year of a midterm, and you got Republicans battling each other out for uh, seats in the House and the primaries and the Senate and the primaries. And uh, here's Monica Welbry, uh, Oregon GOP Senate candidate, shifting the message on Obamacare repeal. I'm just going to go ahead and play this one for you. A GOP Senate candidate in Oregon can't seem to make up her mind about Obamacare. Take a listen to Monica Webby's current TV ad. It's not brain surgery. Obamacare is bad for Oregon. I'm Dr. Monica Webby. 
As a pediatric neurosurgeon, I know firsthand how devastating Obamacare is for Oregon families and patients. It's why I'm the only candidate for Senate who's fought to stop it. And it's why I've demanded a federal investigation into the failure of Cover Oregon. I'm Dr. Monica Webby, and I approve this message because as your senator, I'll fight to repeal and replace Obamacare. Webby is playing a different tune than she was just a few months ago. In November, the Portland Business Journal asked her if she'd try to repeal Obamacare if she was elected to the Senate. Back then, she took a more moderate approach, saying, quote, That's not politically viable at this point. We can't get it repealed with Obama in office. We have to focus on coming together with solutions. She also said she liked Senator Ron Wyden's plan and admitted there are some parts of Obamacare she'd keep. Well, Webby's biggest opponent, State Representative Jason Conger, is jumping all over that. He says that Wyden's plan is no different than Obamacare and accused Webby of only being 90% there when it comes to repealing the law. Kate, you know, should we be surprised that she's taking a harder stance against Obamacare now that her campaign is uh, in full swing? I'm not surprised. I mean, it's not just in Oregon, but across the country. You see a lot of Republican candidates are focusing on opposition to Obamacare as I think they think it's sort of the best thing they have to change and to get voters behind them. So I'm not really that surprised she's taking a tougher stance on it in her ads uh, now. Now, that was from the Huffington Post Live, and other than the fact that the people that they have as reporters over there just look like pea brains, it does show us what's going on behind the scenes. This is this is what I've said. Republicans will continue to talk about getting rid of Obamacare if they think it can get them votes. The reality is they don't really hate Obamacare. They like Obamacare. They just don't like that it's Obama's Obamacare. Uh, they wanted Republicare. Right, and they, they I mean, it, it, people have tried. This is why you got to stop the dichotomy. So the, the the Democratic attack on Republicans is Republicans are not for health care reform. Republicans are totally for government control of health care. Let's just call it what it is. It's not health care reform. It's government control of health care. And Republicans are all over it. Their own version of it, with their own ways to take care of their own people on the sidelines. You understand that Obamacare was a huge payday for insurance companies. Huge payday, right? All these people that are getting signed up and yeah, they're saved now, they're, they're putting money into the insurance coffers. The government option was never going to happen. It was, the, it was the decoy. It was the decoy to get everything else done. Our government doesn't do things where it's just government. Our government does quasi-fascist crap like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Okay, our, uh, like the Federal Reserve. Our government does not run things as a government program in general. It runs them in consort with industry because we are an oligarchy run by a plutocracy. And that's how it works. And it's gonna, you're going to get more and more. Republicans have been getting little victories in Obamacare, but it's not been toward repeal. It's been toward improvement. And I'm telling you right now, by 2016, the call is going to be, we're stuck with this. But some people are paying for other people in this. And we need to make this more universally available. They're going to sell it to you. They're going to sell it to you. And it's going to be the Republicans that sell it to you. It will never be repealed. It's never going away. 
And the reason people like this lady go moderate in interviews when they're being themselves instead of attack ads to try to get elected is they know it'll never be repealed. Even if they really would repeal it if they could. They know it'll never happen. It will never, ever, ever, ever be repealed. The plan was never for it to be repealed. And the only thing you're getting out of Republicans is vote for me over this one issue because I have nothing substantial to talk about. We have so many problems in this country. Obamacare to be singled out as the problem is a huge mistake. It's the government's spending in general. It's the government's control in general. And why don't we ever hear Republicans actually explain it the way I just did? When they say, well, we're for health care reform, what they're really saying is we're for government control of the health care industry. We're for government and private sector working collaboratively, collaboratively together to mediate divisions between the classes to further the goals of the state and industry, which is fascism. Yet not all fascists have, you know, swastikas and red bands on their arms. Fascism is an economic system. All the things that you were taught that are fascism in grade school, genocide, stuff like that, they are just something that one fascist state did. There's plenty of governments who have committed genocide that weren't fascist. There's been monarchies, there's been republics, there's been all kinds of governments that have killed lots of people. Again, if I make a list of the most the, the 100 mass murderers of all time, I've never done it, if somebody wants to take the, the project on, I think that would be kind of cool. The, the 100 people confirmed largest mass killers in the history of the world, I'll bet you every single one of them did it through the power of the state. So... <laughs> why would you trust government now just because they have a different name? They're going to sell it to you, boys, boys and girls. They're going to do it. Let's take another one. Uh, this next one comes to us from, let me see who it comes to us from, Richard. Richard says, or Rich, I'm not sure how he calls himself. I'm using his email address to figure out his name because he didn't put his name. So Rich sends me this, and this is on The Onion. For those not familiar with The Onion, This is a satirical news show. This is like, there used to be the not necessarily the news on HBO back in the 80s, for those of you old enough to remember that, uh, that type of thing, like a parody uh, modern version. And it's been around a long time. I think The Onion goes back to like 99 or 98, very, very early um, publication on the Internet. And they write news stories as though they're real from a satirical standpoint, I was going to write one for them years ago when everybody was making big deals about hunting and killing and the poor animals, and I was going to call it Plight of the Vidalia. This is Vidalia Onion, and the poor onions were ripped from the ground by the hands they trusted and you know something like that. But uh, anyway, this one would be funny if there wasn't so much truth in it. Uh, again, this is satire, just so no one takes it seriously, but maybe we should take parts of it seriously. FBI uncovers Al-Qaeda plot to just sit back and enjoy the collapse of the United States. There's a picture of a dude with a big beard, Arabic-looking feller with a, uh, a watch cap on, and he's got a remote control, and he's laying back in the couch, and he's got a bunch of Arabic writing in front of him. And it says, a recent Al-Qaeda video shows a militant training to carry out his mission of lying back and watching America's status as a superpower erode. Washington. 
Putting the nation on alert against what it has described as a highly credible terroristic threat, the FBI announced today that it has uncovered a plot by members of Al-Qaeda to sit back and enjoy themselves while the United States collapses of its own accord. Multiple intelligence agencies confirmed that militant Islamic organizations and numerous affiliates intend to carry out a massive coordinated plan to stand aside and watch America increasingly rapid decline. With terrorist operatives across the globe reportedly mobilizing to take it easy, relax, and savor the spectacle as it unfolds. Quote, we have intercepted electronic communication indicating that Al-Qaeda members are actively plotting to stay out of the way while America as we know it gradually crumbles under the weight of its own self-inflicted debt and despair. And quote, FBI Direct Deputy Director Mark F. Giuliano told Dissembled Press Corps, quote, if this plan succeeds, it will leave behind a nation with a completely dysfunctional economy collapsing infrastructure and catastrophic health crisis affecting millions across the nation, we want to emphasize that this danger is very real, end quote. Quote, and unfortunately, based on the information we have from intelligence assets on the ground, this plot is already well underway, end quote, he added. A recent declassified CIA report confirmed that all known Al-Qaeda-affiliated organizations from Pakistan to Yemen and from Somalia to Algeria have been instructed to kick back and enjoy the show as the United States federal government Energy grid and industrial sector are rendered impotent by internal dissent, decay, mismanagement. According to statements made by two top-level informants and corroborated by the leading Western terrorism experts, if seen through to its conclusion, Al-Qaeda's current plot could wreak far more damage than the events of 9-11. In the past year, many tra money transfers to Al-Qaeda cells around the world have reportedly been accompanied by instructions to use the fund to outfit safe houses with proper equipment, to receive American cable news broadcasts and view top U.S. news websites, allowing terrorists to fully relish each detail of the impending demise of the last global superpower. Additionally, FBI officials made public an internal Al-Qaeda video today in which the terrorist organization's leader, Amin al-Zawari, chillingly extorts to his followers, quote, take a load off, end quote, and quote, unwind, end quote, in the name of jihad and really cherish the victory over their enemy. Quote, Praise Allah, for soon every American city shall be plugged with disaster and hardship, end quote, al-Zawahiri said in the video, which includes several minutes of footage of young massed al-Qaeda militants casually sipping beverages as they thumb through the latest issues of Time and U.S. News and World Report. Quote, The infidels have brought this pain and destruction upon themselves through their arrogance and callousness. Soon the United States will watch in horror as its bridges crumble. Its desperate citizens suffer in want of medicine and paying employment, and its once vast riches are reduced to naught. The righteous warriors among our ranks must now unite, get comfortable, and look on from afar at the calamity unfolding in the West, unquote. Quote, we vow that we will not cease sitting around and laughing it up until America is reduced to rubble, he concluded. Al-Zwahiri who is seen in the video reclining back in his chair, I guess that's who is supposed to be up there, putting his feet up and flipping on CNN later shouts, Allah Akbar, when a story is aired about a decade-long trend of stagnant wages among American workers. The FBI has also warned that numerous Al-Qaeda agents may have established sleeper cells for the purpose of, quote, getting a kick out of, end quote, the nation's downfall on American soil. The Bureau urged U.S. residents to use caution around schools, hospitals, legislative bodies, prisons, and other decaying institutions whose imminent failure terrorists may wish to observe up close. Speaking on condition of anonymity, one high-ranking U.S. counterterrorism official has described the present situation as a massive failure of intelligence. Quote, 
The warning signs were there all along, but unfortunately we failed to heed them, end quote, said the official who advised Americans to brace for widespread devastation. Quote, if we'd listened to experts or even our own common sense, we would have realized this plot was actively being orchestrated within our own borders, but we didn't, and now every one of our citizens and our very way of life is at risk from this threat, end quote. Quote, sadly, Al-Qaeda has us right where they want us, another official added. And at this point, I fear it is all too late to do anything about it. Responding to the allegations, a spokesman for Al-Qaeda reportedly confirmed the terror group's plot and praised the American people as martyrs of the highest order. Oh, if it were only satire. Oh, if there were no truth there. Oh, if it were not the case that we have spent billions and billions and billions of dollars to protect ourselves from some people in caves. And our nation's greatest security risk is itself. The greatest threat to this nation's sovereignty is economic. I'll say it again. The greatest threat to this nation's sovereignty is economics. It shouldn't be. Actually, economics should be the greatest reason for the sovereignty of this nation to be unstoppable, unimpedable. But the people in power have created a system of financial mining, an extraction of the wealth of the people of the country. You allow them to attain a certain amount of wealth so that you have something to extract. It's kind of like ranching. It's kind of like running a herd of cattle is how we're seen. And not just milked cattle. We're more like the cattle of the Matsai warrior in southern Africa where they take both our milk and our blood and they mix it together and consume it for their own good. But see, that's a parasitic relationship. A parasitic relationship can never truly be a symbiont relationship. There's never balance. The parasite always takes more, and sooner or later, you destroy the host. That's what this article is describing. We have a nation, $17 trillion in debt. And the plan is more debt. We've devalued our money since 1913 by 98%, and the plan is further devaluation. What's the plan? I mean, the people in charge will look at you with a straight face and tell you that's, yeah, of course. That's what we do. It's worked this long. Why won't it keep working? I don't know, man. If, if I were Al-Qaeda, I might look at this and go, well, maybe that is the plan. Maybe we would actually hasten their demise by doing nothing. Maybe if we just put down arms everywhere and just kicked back and watched this with glee. And we didn't give them any ability to lie to their people by showing anything that we're doing anywhere at all. There'd be another lie that would fall apart and they would crumble faster. Because there are people that want to see America's demise, folks. There are. There are people that will kill you. There are people in this world that are both terrorists and just sick people. There are people that, that are American citizens that are just sick psychopaths, and there are, there are terrorists in the world that would take your child in front of you and slit their throat and laugh with glee as you, as you sobbed. 
there are people that sick. Fortunately, their numbers are quite minuscule in comparison to the whole. And I'm not saying that we don't need to resist people like that, that we don't need to, frankly, bury people like that. But scanning the underwear of a 90-year-old woman is not making us safe. And it is hastening our demise. I don't know. The one thing I don't like about this article is it probably has been circulated through Al-Qaeda, and it's probably led to a lot of laughter. The highly credible terrorist threat in this country is the management of this country, the mismanagement of this country, the the calling privileges rights and taking from others to pay for them, the complete reckless spending of the nation, the overgrowth of a police state. America is failing not because of Al-Qaeda or any of our enemies. America is failing because those in charge have chosen a pathway to failure. Let's take another one. Now, th this next one proves how screwed we are. It really does, because it proves how stupid people in power really are. And it's out of Oregon yet again. Oregonians, you guys have the dumbest people in government in the country. I mean, you may not have as much oppression of liberty as places like California and New York, Illinois. You have a little bit more freedom. But you have dumber people in charge. I mean, and if you're mad at me, when I'm done with this, I want you to defend the ignorance here. I mean, you have to be stupid beyond reason to do something this stupid. Again. Again. See, every once in a while, I'll get something from somebody, and they're all keyed up on it. They're like, did you see this? And they email it to you, and it's like, yeah, we covered that like two and a half years ago. Check out the date on the article. You know, and, and they think it's all new, and it's like two and a half years old. It happens all the time. What happens is somebody finds it, throws it on Facebook. It starts getting bounced around, and people think it's new. So I get this, I got this article, and I send it back to the guys. Yeah, oh, dude, covered that long ago. And then I see like four more people sending it to me, and I'm like, oh, well, What's going on? You know, it's so like, go look at it, and it's, it's back. I, I, really, I mean, are people in Portland, Oregon, this flipping stupid? Teen caught urinating in reservoir. Portland, Oregon, the AP. Call it the Big Flush 2, and this time, the sequel promises to be much bigger than the original. Portland officials said Wednesday they are flushing away millions of gallons of treated water for the second time in less than three years because someone urinated into a city reservoir. In June 2011, a city drained a 7.5 million gallon reservoir at Mount Tabor in southeast Portland. This time, 38 million gallons from a different reservoir at the same location will be discarded after a 19-year-old was videotaped in the act. Quote, The basic commandment of the Water Bureau is to provide clean, cold, and constant water to its customers, end quote. Bureau Administrator Dative Schaff said Wednesday, quote, and the premise behind that is we don't have pee in it, end quote. The open reservoirs hold water that has already been treated and goes directly into the mains for distribution to customers. The urine poses little risk. Animals routinely deposit waste without creating a public health crisis. But Schaff said he doesn't want to serve water that was deliberately tainted. Quote, 
There is at least a perceived difference from my perspective, end quote. Schaff said, I could be wrong on that, but the reality is our customers don't anticipate drinking water that's been contaminated by some Yahoo decided to pee into the reservoir. This sounds like the onion. Water quality test samples have been taken from the reservoir with results due Thursday. The water will be drained into a sewage system, eventually reaching a treatment plant before it's dumped into the Columbia River. In the meantime, Schaff said the city has plenty of water to meet the demand. It's easy to replace those 38 million gallons of water, Schaff said. Quote, we're not in the arid southwest. We're not in a drought. It's like stricken parts of Texas or Oklahoma, end quote. The incident occurred shortly after 1 a.m. when Water Bureau security personnel noticed three men on camera at Mant Tabor Water Reservoir Number 5. One was seen on video urinating through an iron fence. Officials said minutes later the two other young men attempted to scale the fence. Three men whose names have not been released were cited for trespassing and excluded from Mount Tabor Park. A 19-year-old was cited for public urination. <laughs> the Monmouth County District Attorney's Office will decide whether to pursue criminal charges. The kidney-shaped reservoir was built in 1911 is drained for cleaning each spring and fall. The spring draining was done about three weeks ago, the Water Bureau said. The reservoir is one of five in the city of the purpose of replacing with underground storage and the process of replacing with underground storage to comply with federal regulations. Floyd Jones, co-founder of the group's Friends in Reservoirs, criticized the decision to drain the reservoir, said there's no evidence of any urine reached the water, and it, would har it wouldn't harm anybody if it did. It's extremely wasteful, she said. The man who urinated in the Portland's water supply in June 2011 eventually pleaded guilty to misuse of a reservoir was sentenced to community service. I mean, if I could, I could interview... This moron that, that apparently is making this decision, this Schaff guy. I would be like, Mr. Schaff, I have a, a very serious question for you, and I want you to take this question seriously. Do you know that you're stupid? Because I think it's really important that we know that about you. Do you know that you're stupid? And, and here's, here's kind of my point with that. There are stupid people that know they're stupid. Stupid people that know they're stupid are not that dangerous. Because they know they're stupid. So they don't do things that really impact other people because they know they're stupid. They're like, well, since I'm stupid, I'm going to take this menial existence for what it is, or I'm going to try to educate myself so that I'm not stupid anymore. I'm going to try to prove that I'm not actually stupid, that I'm simply ignorant, and I'm going to try to cure my ignorance. Okay, Those people are not a problem. Stupid people that don't know they're stupid with power are a big problem. Okay, this is a how how many millions of gallons was it again? I want to make sure I get this right. Thirty-eight uh, million gallons of water, and the kid peed through the fence, and they're not even sure that the pee got into the water. I don't know if he had enough pressure and enough stream and angle to reach it, but. <laughs> Assuming the guy peed a couple ounces in the 38 million gallons, I'd take a cup of water from five feet away from where he peed and drink it out of the, the pond, and I wouldn't worry about it. There's ducks shitting in that water all the time. I mean, you almost can't say anything else, can you? Other than, do you know you're stupid? And anybody in Oregon who's part of this decision-making process, who's okay with draining 38 million gallons of water because some kid peed in a, in a lake, I would ask the same question. Do you know that you're stupid? And I think that might be a new question we have to start asking elected officials and appointed officials in government. Are you aware that you're stupid? 
Because maybe that's the biggest problem. Maybe they just don't know how dumb they are. This guy probably doesn't know he's stupid. Now, you know he's stupid, don't you? I mean, I want to know, is there anybody in this audience that's going to defend this guy? Any, that's going to defend this decision to drain the reservoir? Now, I'm not saying that you make it acceptable for people to go pee there. Like, it's totally okay anybody wants to. I, there's a trespassing and there's a usage. And, yeah, you know, the guy ends up picking up trash for a couple months or something like that to learn his lesson and not do stupid shit like this. Fine. They better not imprison a 19-year-old over taking a whiz, though. Public urination. Oh, dear God, what, what have we come to? Right? So I, I get the whole, like, we, we can't have everybody doing this all the time. I get that. Right? So I'm not asking you if you're going to defend that. I'm going to ask you, are you going to defend the decision to drain 98 million gallons of water 98 million gallons of water solely because somebody peed a couple ounces into a lake. And if you are, I have the same question I do for Mr. Schaff. Are you aware of the fact that you're stupid? And I know some people get upset when I'm that blunt, but I, I think we are at a point in history where the political correctness about not calling stupid stupid has to go away. We have to honestly say This is stupid behavior. And this man, if you live in Portland, this man should be fired yesterday. Whatever you people have to do to clean out this system of people like this, do it. Or you deserve what you have. I can't get rid of somebody in Portland. I can't. I can't even come close to getting rid of somebody in Portland. I can help somebody in Portland if they're being oppressed or something like that. But I cannot in any way, shape, or form, get this guy fired. But you people can. If you live in Portland, you need to get all your green buddies and go, do you see how much they just wasted all this water over this? And when you find someone who tells you, well, I can see why they would do that. That's, that's horrible that there would be pee in our water. You just ask them, do you know? You know, it makes me think, remember the old Jeff Foxworthy routine? And they even did a song with it, right? Here's your sign. Like, this guy should have a sign. So that when somebody sees him, they just, like, I was wondering if you could help me. Oh, I didn't see your sign. That was Jeff's old bit, right? Yeah, I was, well, we were trying to get some stuff. Never mind. I didn't see your sign. Maybe stupid people really should have to wear a sign that says, I'm stupid. Right? And if you don't want to wear your sign anymore, you have to prove that you were only ignorant and you've now graduated in, in life and you now have basic common sense and you've learned from being stupid to not be stupid anymore. Because I really want to ask, I really want to interview this guy. I know I could never get clearance like to record that question and then publicly, because you can't just call somebody up, interview them, not tell them you're recording it and run it. You can get your ass in deep shit for that. You guys in alternative media that do audio, be aware of that. You, If you record somebody's phone call, under any circumstances, you're required to tell them, and if you intend to rebroadcast it, you're required to tell them. Okay? Just so you know. But if I could get this guy to actually give me that consent, I would love to hear his answer to Mr. Schaff. I have a very serious question. Do you know that you're stupid, David? Do you know that you're stupid, sir? Are you aware that you're stupid? There's a difference in perception. There's a difference in perception of 400 ducks landing on a lake and shitting it up 
and one kid taking a whiz? You guys are idiots. You really are. My son at one time in his life, when he was considering building a website and doing something kind of funny and kooky, he was going to make a website called StopTheIdiots.com. And you know what? This guy would have been featured on the homepage. Let's take another one. This next one comes from uh, Mladen. Uh, he says, I was wondering if you could comment on this new solar bill in Oklahoma a little bit on the show. I'll put a link down at the bottom. Thanks for everything you do. And um, I'm not going to read the article because it's pretty long. I'll give you the upshot. Basically, there's a new bill in Oklahoma that says if you install, make sure you understand this as well, grid-tied solar to your home and you sell electricity back to the power company, there'll be a fee. Okay? And everybody's up in arms. This is going to make it impossible for people to put in solar. Oh, my. Here's the thing, okay? The people that are doing this in Oklahoma right now are getting great big tax subsidies to do this. They're getting free money from you, from the government, to do it. So they're already being given. And I guarantee you, if you take that fee... Whatever it is, to, if you're actually selling power back, by the way, okay, if you take that fee and go out over 30 years, it'll never add up to how much subsidy you were given to put those damn things on your roof in the first place. Never, ever. I mean, we're going to have a couple $3 here, probably, all right? Now, why does it make sense that the utility company would say, we're going to charge you a fee, okay? Because you're using their infrastructure for your business. I don't have a business. Yes, you do. If you're selling power to the power company, you, dear friend, have gone into the power generation business. You are selling them your power. And you're using their infrastructure to transmit it back onto their grid so that they can sell it to someone else. And your state made a law that said they have to buy it. Right? We'll get to the, we get to the real problem here in a second. I think some of you are starting to see it. See, that's part of the issue. In Oklahoma, if you put this in and you do have surplus energy, the power company must purchase it from you. Government says so. So whether they want to or not, they have to buy your power. And they have to use their infrastructure to distribute your power. So they're saying it's only right then you pay a fee for access to our infrastructure for this additional requirement. Because, no, it's not the same as when you're buying the power. There's additional things that have to be dealt with when power is being produced and put back on the grid. And here's part of the reality. You're never producing excess power during peak demand. You will always be producing your excess power during non-peak demands when they don't really need it. So now they have to start figuring out how do we put in more more energy storage capacity so that we could actually use this stuff that we're being forced to buy. Let me put it a different way. Every day, about 90,000 of you guys, it's probably more than that, I haven't checked in a while, but every day, as a few, as a few months ago, 90,000 of you download this show. And I make my living off of doing this show. To serve 90,000 people, I have to buy server space and bandwidth. And I pay a server bill of about $600 a month just for my server and my bandwidth. $600 a month. Now, 
I pay for that because it enables me to do what I do. I am not entitled to space. I'm not entitled to somebody giving me a place for my podcasts to be. And even though there are places where theoretically, like Lipson, that I could do that and have somebody else host it and pay for everything, I'm not entitled to bitch when it doesn't work. Because I'm not paying for it. You are not required to sell Oklahoma Power Companies your power. You're choosing to. And they're saying, if you want to sell us your power, this is a fee we charge for the infrastructure that you use to do that. And this is another example of a mountain out of a molehill. Because it's probably going to be some $3.99 charge or something like that. Right? And it's going to help offset what they have to do to make use of all this power so that they can operate profitably. Because if they don't, we have a problem and we'll end up bailing them out. Now, how does all this mess start? Number one, the government says, we want you to use solar and wind. And you're not doing it. So we'll take other people's money and we'll use it to subsidize your choice to use solar and wind. And we'll give you money right there. That second, you no longer get to bitch when the government does something you don't like. You willingly took, and let's be honest about this, my money. My and other Americans' money was taken from us without our consent and given to you for the purpose of installing this infrastructure. You chose to do that. Then the government tells the power company, you must buy the power. Not you can buy the power. You must. Because the power company might say, you know what, we'll buy a power, but we'll only buy it from customers that routinely produce enough power to earn 50 bucks a month. If you ain't producing that much, it's a trickle in and out, we don't really care. You're offsetting your bill, you got to do something with it when there's surplus, you don't want to set up battery storage or whatever, you don't want to go off grid, then it is what it is. And they might say, hey, you know what, we'll actually buy it from everybody. They would make their own decision, but no, the government's involved. The government tells them they have to. So first the government took my money without my consent and gave it to you to buy your solar panels. Then it told the power company they have to buy the power those panels produce. And then the power company says, well, fine, but then we're going to charge a fee. And here's why it's all crap. Very few of you will ever produce a meaningful amount of surplus power in a grid-tied solar situation anyway. Very few of you will ever produce a meaningful amount of surplus energy with grid-tied solar in the first place. You might do it with wind. You might very well do it with a big enough wind machine. But with solar, grid-tied, if you were producing that much solar energy, if you were producing that much surplus, you'd be off the grid in a standalone system. And if you don't want to pay the fee, build an off-grid system and run it in hybrid inside your home and stay on grid. You don't have to do any of this. You don't have to take tax money to pay for your solar panels and your batteries or, or whatever. Your inverters. They probably won't do the batteries, but the inverters and the, the panels, right, or the windmill, you don't have to take my money to pay for that. If you choose to, then don't be surprised when there's a cost down the road. There is no free lunch. So I think this story is mountain out of molehill and more example of the unintended consequences of government interfering where it should not be interfering. This wouldn't even be an issue if we didn't start out in the first place with subsidies for solar and wind. 
Now, am I saying you shouldn't take the subsidy for solar and wind? No, I'm not. I'm not. If you want to do it, just understand that it comes with conditions. It comes with conditions. You, you've set yourself up in their system, and then their system does something you don't like. See, what this is, is this is a sour grapes thing. So the guy puts in, I don't know, $50,000 system, gets $10,000 worth of free shit, so it only costs him $40,000? And he says, well, it actually cost me $40,000. No, no, it cost $50,000. I paid $10,000 of it. Okay, so you got $10,000. Whether you want to accept this or not, when you do that, you just got $10,000 from your fellow taxpayers. And, gee, I got ten grand, but there's a condition with it? Your job has a condition with it. And this type of fee exists. This type of fee exists everywhere. You know that you're, if you have a job, your employer is charging you fees. Do you know that? No, I don't mean FICA and FUTA and Medicare and your health insurance. No, I mean in your wages, you're being, you're being charged a fee. You're paying part of the electric bill. Do you know that? You're paying part of the electric bill at your office. You're paying for your computer, your desk. No, you don't think so? Well, here's how it works. As an employer, I do a cost analysis. And in that cost analysis, I determine how much I can pay an employee. And in that cost analysis is my burden labor rate. So what does it cost me for an hour for that person to be in that chair? right? And what am I able to bill? And the difference is profit. What do they contribute to the company and how much money does the company make as a result of their activity versus the burden labor rate, my total cost to have them there? Well, all of the stuff, including the roof over your head and the chair under your ass in that building, is factored in when we determine what wage we can pay an employee. So in essence, if I didn't have to pay for all that shit, I would be paying you more. And you work for the fee and you don't, you're like, oh, okay, well, that's, how, that's how much I really work for. That's fine. But if I said, let's say you were working for me for $25 an hour. That was your salary at, at the office. And I said, you know what? Actually, when I really look at this, you're really earning a salary of $35 an hour. But if I paid you $35 and then charged you $10 an hour back as a fee, you'd have a conniption. Well, because power is regulated so tightly, it's not possible for the power company to just raise the rate a tenth of a cent per kilowatt and cover the cost of doing this. So they're going to cover it somewhere, and they're going to cover it with the people creating the need. And don't tell me they're not creating a need. Oh, they're supplying power, and, and they're helping. Well, yes, they are. Okay. Because here's the other way that the power company could do it. The power company could say, yeah, we'll buy the power. Here's our price to buy the power. But the government has said, not only will you buy the power, you will pay X versus Y percentage against it. So the government set the price they have to pay for the power and required them to buy it. So instead of simply saying, well, we'll pay one-tenth of a kilowatt less for the power we're buying, or one-tenth of, one of a cent per kilowatt less, or whatever, Right, A little tiny reduction in what they're paying, which would net the same thing. They've been forced into this fee being obvious by government regulation, where none should have existed in the first place. They shouldn't have gotten involved with this. If solar and wind were that great, well, people would just be putting them in by the shit ton. But to get it done, you have to steal other people's money, 
provided in the form of a subsidy, and force power companies to purchase that which they did not ask to buy. Your power company should not be required to buy the surplus power you produce. It should not. Now, here's the beauty of this. I have people out there right now angry with me. Well, of course they should. I'm producing it. It's going to them. They're getting it. I bet you didn't feel that way about Obamacare. Oh, did you think of that? You, having the government force the power company to buy your power, is no different than the government forcing you to buy health insurance from Aetna or Blue Cross and Blue Shield. It is the same thing. And it doesn't feel good when the shoe's on the other foot and that foot's kicking you in the ass, does it? That's what this is. This is how government works today. The government is forcing one person to buy from another. And it is no different. Well, it is different because I have to have power. Yes, you have to have power. I guess. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go with that one. Yeah. I mean, nobody did 150 years ago, but we'll, we'll let that go. Okay, you have to have power. Fine. You don't have to sell it. You don't have to take the money to get the free, the, the free stuff that comes with your solar panels. And I'm telling you, if the government wasn't regulating the price in and the price out, the price would just have been adjusted to compensate like every other business decision that's done every day that you never bitch about because you never see it. And most people just don't think at that level to comprehend that everything has a cost associated with it. And a business must balance cost and expense against profit. And if a business does not do that, they fail. And I'll tell you one business you don't want failing. The people that provide you your electricity. You do not want their business to fail. Let's take one more and we'll wrap up for today. I'd like to finish with something positive today because we talked a lot about stupid people and stupid behavior and stupid people that don't know they're stupid. That It doesn't mean that we have to have stupidity. That We can teach people to not be stupid. And we can actually empower people by not being afraid to use the word stupid. I remember my my uh, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law, the cop and the teacher, that are like the. They, I think they've improved over the years, but back when the kids were young, they were so plastic. They really were. They were like the typical like perfect family, right? I'm a teacher and I'm a police officer, and we don't do bad things, and everything's black and white, and blah 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 blah. And I remember one time I had the kids and my nephew and my niece, and some guy cut me off in a car or something like that, and I said, "You stupid," and. The, the, the boy said, Uncle Jack, we don't say stupid. That's not nice. Well, I think you call stupid stupid when it's stupid. And here's a lesson from a four-year-old. Breaking the teacup mold from Daryl. FYI, Adrian is my son. So Adrian and I were looking up random how-to videos on YouTube. And an ad came up before one of them. It was one of those tear-jerking gun-grabber propaganda machines. A little boy and a little girl were playing hide-and-seek. The girl hides in a parent's closet and finds a handgun in a shoebox and is waving it around, poking at it, looking down the barrel, etc. The end of the commercial comes up as, Would you stop this? Or something to that effect. Just as I prized myself to teach Adrian, who is for a valuable lesson from the folly of the commercial, he pipes in, That girl is stupid. You don't handle guns that way. And quote, Oh, the power of education. Good for you, Adrian. Good for you, son. We should call stupid stupid. That way, maybe the stupid will know they're stupid 
and stop messing things up for everyone else. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.